Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Dennis Schuler, your moderator for Vendapunkt, Inflection Points of Senior Leaders. This webcast is brought to you by the good folks at Kinetic Consulting. I'm joined today by Alice Elliott, who's one of the most foremost advisors in executive search, human resources, and leadership. Alice is the founder and the CEO of the Elliott Group. Now, you may not have heard about Alice if you don't work in the hospitality and retail sector, but she is an indomitable force, and we're really, really lucky to have her on the webcast today. Just to give you a sense of the accomplishments of Alice <clears throat> in her career, she's been featured in the QSR magazine, that's Quick Serve Restaurant Magazine, as one of the 20 most influential restaurant leaders. Nation's Restaurant News sees her as one of the 50 most powerful people in food service, and in 2019, she was honored by her peers as the winner of Nation Restaurant News Norman Award, named after legend Norman Brinker, who revolutionized casual dining in the United States. She's been featured on CBS This Morning Saturday for a collaboration on the Underground Culinary Tour, and has been also a featured guest on Bloomberg Radio, focusing on business trends and innovation. I'm really excited she's made time for little old me because she is a um, hot commodity and a, a treasured speaker and a powerful voice. Uh, in the industry. Now, Alice has also been the recipient of several awards, including the coveted Women's Food Service Forum Trailblazer Award and the prestigious Roundtable for Women in Food Service called the Paysetter Award. She sits on the Board of Trustees of the Culinary Institute of America. I don't think she cooks, but she can tell us that a little bit later on, and was inducted in the nation's Restaurant Association Education Foundations College in 2010 for her tireless work promoting the hospitality sector. Alice has hosted over the last 25 plus years, the Elliott Leadership Conference, which has fe featured business icons like Stephen Covey, Jim Cramer, Dave Thomas, and Norman Brinker, all legends in their own rights. And finally, Alice co-founded the Elliott Leadership Institute, a not-for-profit solely dedicated to leadership development and advancement of the next generation of leadership. Alice, I couldn't be more thrilled to have you on our webcast today. I've always been impressed by your absolute command of the hospitality sector and the reputation you so well deserve and the impact you've had on many, many executives uh, over the course of your career. But I actually want to drift back to the early days, if I can, and ask you what your mom and dad were like and what did they instill in you and specifically what did you carry forward from them into your adult life? I, I grew up in a home of entrepreneurship. My dad, uh, both of my folks are deceased. My dad's been deceased for over 35 years. My dad owned a little employment agency and my dad dealt with laborers and he got them jobs in factories. So think, you know, all these years, long, long time ago, pioneer in New York City. He did not have a college degree, but he was a man who read, loved education. And it was very important to him that his children went to college. I'm the youngest of four and I'm the only girl, uh, which kind of speaks to my uh, fastidiousness and my ability to take care of myself. And, but, my, but my folks were very giving people. Everything to them was about as much as you give is what you hope you get. And I would go to work with my dad when I was six years old. My brothers would go off with my mom and I'd go with my dad on the bus to the subway to New York City. And my dad always spoke, Dennis, quite eloquently about changing people's lives. And he would talk to me about people 
having an opportunity that which today is really very much in my own DNA, the dignity of work. What you can contribute has far reaching implications, not only for yourself, but for your family, the country, the economy and the world. And my dad always spoke about, you know, he placed these laborers in, in jobs and they would either send money abroad to support their family or they would bring their family to America. And in those days, you know, as I hope it's true yeah. today, the greatest country in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think early on it instilled in me a sense of respect for working and for entrepreneurship and for making a contribution. And it was, you know, there's an old saying, a, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. So I don't know that I understood it as much then as I do now, but it was something that was always very important to me and really um, helped guide me. My mom, who was actually a dental hygienist, she, and she was, you know, one of the first in her class to go to Columbia for that. But she also grew up in an orphanage for a, a period of time early on in her own life. And she had had a lot of different obstacles, um, you know, growing up and things that she had to deal with. And I think it was the combination of both that really taught me a sense about not only giving back, but community and the importance of family. And family is the orbit that you create. So it almost extends beyond where you grow up. So I've always had that inclination. Uh, good on you, Alice. Um, it was remarkable that your parents were able to instill that in you. I want to stay uh, on your early years for a moment. And I think I read that when you graduated um, or near graduation, you had a job that you were working for someone that treated you in a very mean manner. Um, I'd like to have you recount what that was like and what were the lessons you took away from that? And how has that shaped your own leadership behavior? I was in the, in those days, it wasn't necessarily called the retained uh, executive search world where Elliot resides today. But one of my early, well, my first job, by the way, was in a factory. So I learned a lot when I was in high school, you know, had to obviously, as many people do, you know, get money to go be able to go to college. And, but when I started out in this industry, I worked for a married couple and I worked for a woman directly um, who I, I learned a lot about leadership. She yelled all the time. And I, and quite candidly, I didn't expect to go into business as early as I did. I mean, I, I always knew I'd be in business. I didn't business would be in. I was supposed to go to law school, took the LSATs, um, you know, thought that I'd end up being an attorney, but I always had a penchant for business, always loved business. When I read Tiger Beat or Cosmopolitan, I was always reading the Wall Street Journal and Fortune magazine underneath. Um, so, and especially as a young girl, right? Girls in those days weren't really supposed to be as prone towards business, but I worked for a woman actually who she just, I think in retrospect, she was an unhappy person, but there wasn't anything that myself or anyone else in that organization could do right. And she was constantly criticizing and screaming. And I quit. I subsequently a year later apologized. I didn't have the emotional maturity at the time to do it properly. Um, but I subsequently went into business and I said, I will never work for anyone again. I will go create a culture where people feel respected. And that's always been a very important, um, you know, quality as we have built Elliot over the years, I was to have a business in between that was not successful, but it was always very important to me to treat the people around me with great respect and dignity. Yes. Uh, Alice, dignity and respect, um, as it relates to work is really some of the hallmark uh, foundations of, um, of good businesses. Uh, but, but before we get to good businesses, I wanna actually dwell on 
a failure that you had, I think at the tender age of 23. And um, yeah, I think you had struck out on your own and uh, things didn't go as well as you thought. You really didn't understand business like you should have. And you ended up declaring bankruptcy. And I think they took everything from you. Can you comment on that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, and I also think life is the culmination of events and you have to have, you have to be nimble to be able to walk through doors and we all create our own opportunity. I would tell you that when I left where I had been working to go out on my own, I had a business partner. He also left, a lot of people left. Two of us decided to open a company. Um, we were great at what we did. And I, was I thought I was very good at what I did, but I was not prepared for business. I didn't know what a P&L was. I had graduated the University of Colorado, went there on loans um, as magna cum laude in early American history. So I was very adept at Samuel Adams, the American Revolution. I could tell you anything you wanted to know about that. All kind of combined, originally thinking I'd be an attorney. But that being said, when I got into the actual business world, as much as I loved business, I didn't know what a debit was. I didn't know what a credit was. We were in a building that was unionized. I say that very respectfully, but you know, was totally unprepared. And within the first couple of years, while we had a lot of business coming in, couldn't manage the business. It was, the business was growing so fast. And subsequently, um, early on in my 20s, I was to go through bankruptcy, actual bankruptcy. So, you know, sat down, went home, felt very humiliated. I had borrowed money to go into business, went back, um, you know, spoke to my folks. They said, listen, you know, go speak to this accountant. They didn't have a lot of money. We weren't poor, but we were strictly middle class. And long story short, sat down with an accountant and an attorney. And they said, listen, you know, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be in business um, in those days. And, you know, I'm not that old, but it was like, go get married, have kids. You know, you should not be in business. You don't know what you're doing. And that curiously fueled my ambition. Um, as I think we all have these experiences, someone says you can't and you yeah. prove that you can. But I also understood Dennis very deep down that I had a voice and I knew that I wanted to make a contribution. And it was a very humiliating time of life because no one likes being a failure. You know, here I was, I loved business. I was ambitious, I was young. I wanted to conquer New York City. I had come back, all, all these different things. Um, and a number of different things happened. At that time, my dad came down with a deviant um, of a brain disease, actually a deviant of mad cow disease. So wow. he subsequently passed away within three months. Like all these different things happened to me. But I still had the fortitude to understand that I had to keep going, that there was something within me that knew that I had a calling and I always had a pension for people. And that kind of fueled my ambition and my confidence. I would also say that at that time, I you know, had just gotten married. I you know, married a guy that was totally not in the same industry. He owned a real estate appraisal company at the time, but he really um, you know, gave me a lot of the confidence that I didn't have in myself because I was in a lot of debt and it took a long time to work through that. And I wasn't sure exactly what I would do. I knew nothing about the hospitality industry, but um, you know, through circumstances, was eager to go prove that I really could do something and contribute to the greater good of all. It was very hard in those days to find people that you always find out who your friends are when mm -hmm. things don't go great. And I learned a lot of lessons both about people, people I thought I knew, 
uh, made some new friends for sure. But I also went back to school at night to the American Women's Economic Development, which is a free program in New York City. And they taught me marketing a little bit and they taught me finance and strategy. And you know that gave me confidence to meet other people that were in the business world that had had some setbacks. And that was a wonderful, I don't know if the organization, I don't think they're still in business, but it gave me an, an extraordinary foundation point of which to have the confidence to start again. And Alice, uh, during that period of um, really difficult uh, time in your life where you're declaring bankruptcy and you failed, uh, you did climb back. And I want to, again, I want to go back and uh, comment on um, a number of people I've worked with over the years that have failed. And some recover and some don't. And um, yet I find in my own career when I bombed out and I bombed <laughs> a couple times, more than I'd like to admit, uh, that that's where the greatest learning comes from. So how did you climb back from that? And what did you learn about yourself? First of all, I would echo your comment. That's where the great learning comes from. And you know, first I'll take it from what I do professionally as a retained executive search firm. Um, and we're completely recommendation and referral. The first thing I look at when I look at someone's background is what is their pattern? Everyone has a pattern and how did they choose to adapt and morph from situations either they created or they inherited. So I always look for someone who has had some obstacles. It's not what happens to you in life, it's what you do with it. I would tell anyone who's younger, um, and we have here at Elliott our own next generation of leadership that I spend a lot of time with. It's a great joy to me because I see myself, I was always that kid. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you that being prepared is really important. I wasn't prepared. So I had all the ambition and I had the drive and I had the moxie. I was the kid at three years old. I'd wake up, read the Bopsy Twins, but I'd be writing business cards. I always wanted to be in business. You know, I mean, I, I always was, I was doing music, like anything. I loved business. It was something very, I love the art of the deal. I still do. I get really excited about it. And frankly, if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be on Wall Street because I love the excitement of the rush. But I would tell you that being prepared and seeking out people and getting advice, many of the things I did do. So I was very careful when I started Elliot to go out and find people that were either meant, could be mentors to me or would be kind enough to spend the time to give me insight and counsel that I could adapt to my own unique situation. There's, you know, education is everything and there's practical education, the education of life. And then there's also, as I pointed out earlier, I should have known what a debit and a credit was. I was clueless. I knew nothing about finance. And whether you like it or not, that is a really important component. And it's a sign of self-respect because otherwise you always give your power away. And that is not a cool thing. So let's shift gears a little bit, if I can, Alice, to um, those early days of starting your own company. What was it like? Uh, again, it's, uh, uh, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, they are courageous. Um, they're risk takers. Uh, they're extremely thoughtful. Um, some shoot for the moon. Uh, others kind of incrementally inch their way down the, uh, down the pathway, but all have a common ingredient, which is this ability to stick to it and see it through. Uh, so tell me about your story, the early days of starting your company. Well, thank you for the question. Um, and by the way, I think that is, that is still the same opportunity that exists today. I want to make that point. So we've been in business over 35 years and 
Um, I think those, you know, the tools may be different, technology today and things like that, but I think the opportunity exists. So when you have, um, when you feel humiliated and you feel ashamed of yourself and you lose your, comp you know, your confidence and your compass point, uh, if you want to keep going, you will try anything. And in my case, someone recommended fast food. I didn't know what fast food was. It was clueless to me. But I took a phone book at the foot of our one-bedroom apartment um, in Tarrytown, New York. Uh, you know, we had like, my husband's a big music guy, so we had like foam on the ceiling and stuff. And uh, took, took the phone and started calling fast food restaurants. And I asked them if they needed any help. And, you know, these guys would answer the phone and, you know, it was mainly guys. And of course I had three older brothers and I was close to my dad and, you know, love men, have a lot of men at Elliott. So I, you know, uh, understood that and they love my energy and they said, you know, yeah, we need a, we need a general manager and assistant manager and we'll pay you 25 bucks when you're bankrupt and you have a lot of debt and you need to prove something, uh, you're going to do it. So I slowly started to actually go into fast food restaurants. We, you know, had one car, husband would drive me. I'd go to a fast food restaurant. I'd see a kid working. I was a kid. I'd go to the phone. There's a little phone. I take the dime, call the kid and say, Hey, love the way you look. I describe how they look. I say, have you ever thought about your career? And these kids would look down. They'd say career. What are you crazy? I'm busy serving French fries. No one asked me about my career. And that's actually how it started. And because I wasn't from the industry of hospitality and food, though I was always hospitable, um, I didn't understand that you needed a certain skill set to even be in that business. I was so naive. I didn't know anything. All I knew was that I love the energy. I love the fact that, you know, food, it was fun and it was happy that they liked me and they gave me a chance. And I use that as the stepping stone to really understanding an industry that hadn't reached what is today. You know, you tell people you're in the hospitality industry, you know, put COVID aside, it's the coolest thing in the world. I mean, everyone loves food, look at the media, and I give the media a lot of credit. You look at, you know, these wonderful chefs and the amazing leaders. And that really was how it started. And then I brought someone on to our organization who is still with our company, um, you know, one of my first colleague who's been awesome, who actually had gone on a scholarship to Cornell and was in the industry who taught me. And I started to hire people that had completely different skill sets than I did. And that's how we slowly started to build Elliot. You know, one of the things that um, you've said is uh, that you were seeking out people that were different than you, that brought different skills, different vantage points. I'm just curious, was that intentional on your part or is that just kind of how you're wired? Because frankly, uh, I think the general tendency is to hire people that are in your own image. It's more comfortable, it's more uh, satisfying, I think. Uh, at least that's the bias, but you took a different path and I think it's made all the difference for you and your firm. Please comment on that, would you? I think it's a combination. I think, first of all, it's how I'm wired. I grew up in a, in a um, I grew up, you know, in Queens, New York. Uh, so I grew up with great diversity. It's always been an important part, not only of this firm, but just also how I view the world. Uh, so I have always been attracted to different lifestyles and different people and different experiences. I happen to be very curious, which I think is an extraordinarily important part of anybody, regardless of what they choose to do in life. 
I've also, um, I read a lot and I, even going back my entire life, I'm a newspaper junkie, a magazine junkie. I love the news. I love to dream. I think if you don't read, you can't dream. And if you can't dream, that's a different discussion, Dennis, for another day. I think it's very important. Um, so I always sought people out that would have a skill set that was different than myself, but we have the same values. But I always wanted people I could learn from that I knew would respect me, but would also understand that I wanted to listen and be better. I always want to be better. And I think the leaders that even today that we look at, the ones that are most successful, they have great confidence. It's what we at Elliot call courageous behavior. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time talking about this. But they nevertheless have a sensitivity and they're phenomenal listeners to always being willing to adapt their thinking for the benefit of the global enterprise. And it's not about them. And I've just always been that way. Alice, uh, thanks for that. That's that's terrific. Um, Hey, I'm going to jump into your business a little bit more directly. But before moving there, I want to talk to you about one of the lessons your dad had provided you, which is about the dignity of work. And it's a topic that I don't think we in business talk a lot about, but work must create meaning. And whether you're a CEO or whether you're a janitor, you want to be recognized in very personal ways and motivating ways and inspiring ways uh, for your work. No matter, again, if it's in the boardroom or it's in the lunchroom, it doesn't matter. I'm just curious how that's uh, shaped your thinking as an executive and and now a leader of a search firm. And importantly, what lens you look through as you assess candidates for that unique uh, ability to reach people at the point they're at um, and create meaning for them through dignifying their work. Can you comment on that, please? So there's two buckets. Our firm has, has always been founded on the notion that we give back. We were giving back You referenced 25 years of the Elliott Leadership Conference, and we've done so many things beyond that. We had no right to do that. We had no money. We were kids. We'd run around the country, beg CEOs to come to the Elliott Conference. We were able to get sponsors and speak from their heart, not only their head. Because we understood early on that you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with, and it's the education of sharing to make an industry better. So... The dignity of work is, you know, and that's this just even also started when I worked in a factory. I, I saw that I, I was responsible for the piece rate system. For every piece that someone did on the trouser, they were paid. And it really made an indelible impact in me that it's like an orchestra. You can't have beautiful music without everyone in an orchestra and everyone has a different role and they have a different instrument they play. It just depends when they're needed to play that instrument. So if you think about that from a work stance, it's really what working's all about. It's in any great scenario should be collaborative. The way that we transferred this is that as we've now been sought out as thought leaders, in addition to our great work in executive search, it's all about leadership. And it's about who is on your team and how you allow them the opportunity to continue to morph independent of their own great talent. It doesn't take away from the fact that you may need someone who is very nuanced as general counsel, finance, purchasing, supply chain, all of it. But at the end of the day, there is a dignity of work and respect. Not everyone is meant to be a CEO, but that still doesn't mean they can't be a great leader. It doesn't mean they can't be a coach in their own right, a mentor, and by virtue of that, also the recipient of others. 
And, you know, Dennis, I would make a point to your great um, talent and you've got so, you know, you're in, a, you're in your own right an amazingly accomplished businessman. You chose to be in the area of human capital, which is really where Elliot resides. And when you think about human capital, it is in the center. And we see this now, certainly during COVID more than ever. Human capital, I mean, we think this is gonna be the year as it should have been a long time ago, the year of the chief people officer, because without the chief people officer, nothing gets done in any great organization. And that was not always the case years ago. I think what yeah. current events have done, it's taught us that, you know, that unique skill set really is a driver, both in the underbelly of these great organizations, but also as an advocate and a counselor to the CEO. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna build on that a little bit, Alice. Uh, I was interviewed, um, I think about a year ago in a magazine. About um, question was why did I get into the field that I've been in for the last uh, 35 years, and it literally goes back to um, at least my earliest recollection why why I wanted to do what I'm doing today is we're a uh, poor family, uh, not unlike you. We had a one car, I think it was a 1966 Chevelle. It was literally a shitbox, um, but I was 16 at the time and I was uh, anxious and learning how to drive like most 16 year olds. And so I would take my dad back and forth to the factory and um, you know, I'd get there at a uh, quarter to seven in the morning and have to, I'd have to be back there at 2.45. And, you know, it was a big honking factory. He would leave the car, go into the mouth of the, of the factory, and then eight hours later, come back out. And after, you know, two or three weeks of driving them back and forth, I finally asked him, I said, you know, Dad, what's it like, what's it like to work in there? Because it looks like a big uh, cavern you walk into, and then you kind of disappear out of the light into the dark. And he said, well, he says, when I go past the gate, what I do is I take my brains out of my head and I put them in the gate and for eight hours, I'm told what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And then after eight hours, I pick up my brains and I become a normal human being again. And I think it was at that point, um, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to study organizations and try to figure out how you could build organizations that could take full advantage, and I mean in a positive way, full advantage of the human potential, as opposed to just their arms, legs, and back, but how you could engage the whole person, and especially the mind. I have a lot of respect, because think about what you do on a daily basis. You touch so many people. You touch so many people, and, you know, I really do believe this. It just takes one person to change someone's life. And it could be in any setting. It's, you know, when we talk about dignity, it's, it's, it's going into a store and saying, ma'am or sir, or thank you. It's giving mm -hmm. that extra tip. It's, it's asking someone their opinion. It's, there's just so many ways to do it, to inspire that drive. And that's what really builds greatness. And, it's what's, and it means self-respect. Right. Exactly right, Alice. Um, that's been my experience as well. Uh, let, me, let me probe a little bit more on um, you building your company in the early days, uh, especially as a woman in the industry. What challenges did you encounter as you grew it? And how did you meet those challenges? I am personally the recipient of having had a lot of male um, leaders and executives believing in me and seeing and giving me a chance and giving our firm a chance and seeing the great work that Elliot does. 
and the great, you know, what we call the Elliot experience. Oh. And they then have referred us to others. But I would say it was very, very hard. And I think early on, it also spawned for me, um, you know, the interest to not only always continue to give back, but our firm, whether it was being co-founders of the Multicultural Food Service Hospitality Alliance 25 years ago. I mean, this is just, again, the threat of Elliot. So when people today call and say, do you have a diversity division? We're like, no. Um, same thing. We're early board members. And I want to give my colleagues all the credit in the world for shepherding that at the Women's Food Service Forum. You know, recently, you know, we've always been aligned, obviously, to the National Restaurant Association, but they've got so many different things. We're recently involved in raising all those money for the hourly employees for their initiative uh, that raised, you know, close to $30 million. So I would say, look, um, it hasn't. It hasn't always been easy, but I've also never let it be the stumbling block. To me, it's always been about the work that this firm has been able to accomplish. And it's always been, I, I've always felt that people who don't understand the importance of expanding their own horizons, they're either reflective of the background they came from, um, and perhaps they don't want to change because you know we all can change. You can't change people. You know this, Dennis, as well as I do. You can only change the way you react to them. Right. People who are closed-minded, um, and to answer your question, who don't want to work with women, if they don't want to change, they're not going to. But that being said, there's plenty of people. And I'll tell you what happened along the way. Some of the guys that were, were originally very standoffish to me personally. You know, and I, I've been the recipient of, you know, a lot of comments and things like that. And that's okay. I, things like that just never really bothered me. But they then had daughters and all of a sudden they had a daughter who was coming into high school and their daughter wanted to, you know, go have a career. And they started to think about it a little bit differently. And I started to get phone calls from, you know, a lot of people, uh, very formidable people saying, listen, I don't know much about it. And I don't know how, you know, women work in the workplace because it hasn't been my path, but would you speak to my kid? Then their wives were like, you know what? We're going to go to industry. So they started to see the lens a little bit differently. And, you know, and I, I happen to have two sons. So I didn't at that time have, you know, I didn't have a daughter. So my orbit, even at home was, you know, male. But I think that the world started to change. And I think there's, it's, this is also such an amazing time to be a young woman because I really do believe, yes, you're always going to have obstacles. You're always going to have people that don't want to have you come in, but there are so many that do. There are so many that do. So let's go promote and celebrate the ones that do, because that will open more doors for everyone. Exactly right on the point, uh, at least I think. Uh, now, Alice, uh, you run um, the preeminent search firm in the hospitality space, and you're national recognized. And you've seen your share of executives along the way. I'm not going to ask you how many interviews you've ever done in your life, but I'm sure it's in the tens of thousands. Tell me about the characteristics that successful candidates have and how they differentiate themselves from those that are less successful. And if you can build on that, what are the common mistakes that you see people make as they develop their careers that may limit themselves in terms of their potential or employability? So first of all, at Elliott, just by virtue of the tenure of the firm, remember I started in my 20s, mm -hmm. we track talent. And our own colleagues here at Elliott 
We go from, you know, recently opening in Denver with next generation of leadership all the way through over 30 years and everything in between. So we have a lot of stability in our firm. And I point that out because that really helps us when we go out and we do in a non-discriminatory fashion, judge talent. We've been able to track people. We want to understand through our behavioral analysis, why did they take the steps that they did? What drives them? What's their passion? What's their learning? Where were perhaps they not successful? If they had to cross correct, we look at everything. We get to know families. We, we are extraordinarily fastidious and rigorous in our own process to really understanding above and beyond the technical, which is really important. And we'll do a cultural immersion with the client. We will absolutely garner what we need to technically to ascertain that someone should be that right leader and that right candidate, regardless of background. But we spend a lot of time. We also wanna understand, is someone willing to hop on a plane and go do their own exploration? How ambitious are they to really dig deep. So it is a little bit mix of the cultural and the art and certainly the science and the data, but we spend an extraordinary amount of time because it's not about us. It's really all about the client and ensuring that this individual is right. And it's also right for the individual and it's right for their family. Otherwise no one wins. And I will tell you that our firm, because we track the data, we are very well known. You know, the average length of tenure is anywhere between five to seven years of the people that we bring in, unless there's an acquisition or something happens beyond Elliot's control. We are really very, very careful around that. And Alice, you are the gold standard. I can't think of any search that has uh, that I've done with you, and we've done several that I've uh, walked away going, "Wow, that was uh, that wasn't very good, or that was a waste of time." You've always put great candidates in front of us. And I've always um, really respected your ability to kind of discern the good from the not so good. Um, so my next question is, what would you recommend to people who are listening to this webcast about how to develop themselves? What's your sage advice from your tenure in the, in the industry? It's imperative to be a student of the world, way beyond your core industry. So if you are in architecture or perhaps you're in oil and energy, you know, put hospitality outside of it. It is important that you know what's going on, world events. You know, we here, even on our own firm, everyone reads the Wall Street Journal, reads the Forbes, the Fortune, reads the Vanity Fair, reads everything. Critically important. You want to be a well-rounded individual. Mm -hmm. It's just so important. Have interests. Have things that make you feel fulfilled. Because when you go on that interview, people want, you know, yes, people always still, unfortunately, hire in their own image which you haven't asked me, but I would absolutely say they do. And there are some companies that work hard to break that barrier and we work with them to break that barrier. But the more well-rounded someone is, and then the more that someone can be exposed to disciplines that are adjacent to what they do. There was a time that you had to be a specialist. We're seeing that that is no longer true. You know, if you were in marketing, no one asked you to run the P&L. Today, you can't be in marketing without really understanding and having business judgment. How does it apply in the ecosystem of a great organization at every level? People also want to know, what is the life that you choose to lead? Are you, and it's not anyone's place to judge, but are you spiritually philanthropic? So whether someone goes and 
is involved in their synagogue or their church, whether they decide to donate to a food bank, whether they do city meals on wheels, whatever it is that they do, what is the life that you lead to expand your horizons and show that you also have empathy? And also do things that really challenge yourself with. So for example, in my case, I've worked very hard. I am brilliant when it comes to domestic. You can now quiz me internationally, never at your level, Dennis, but I have worked very, very hard to learn more about the world and about places that you know I may never have been to quite yet. I look forward to going, but it allows me the opportunity to partake in a conversation. I read the sports pages every day. I watch, well, I happen to like football, but I watch football. I do things that I'm always challenging myself to expand my own horizons because it only makes me better as a leader. And I don't think people, especially young people understand, they are role models today. You don't have to wait to be a role model. You don't have to wait to have someone look up to you. It's those little things that you do in between it's when you never know that someone is watching you, that you can actually impart great wisdom to someone. And that's very inspirational. Alice, I, I got to say, I'm smiling as I listen to you and your passion for uh, reading. And you mentioned that you read the Wall Street Journal. As you probably know, I'm on a three university boards. And usually when there's a board meeting, I'll go in for a day or two and, and teach uh, several classes to get in touch with the students. And kind of get back and my first question, whether it's in the classroom or frankly, what's in it, whether it's in an interview with a young person, first question I'll ask is what did you read in the Wall Street Journal? And the best students will rip it off and say, here's what, here's what's going on. And what they, what they're demonstrating is they create connections and they have context for the business world. The not so good ones will look at you like a dog listening to a, to a sound that you can't hear. Uh, but it is all about creating connections and context, um, uh, which is so important in business today. I totally agree. I think public speaking is critical. And I, I know you'll find this hard to believe, but I used to be very, very shy early I'm in my career. Remember, that. I was humiliated. When you don't feel good yeah. about yourself, you don't mm -hmm. want to talk to people. And, you know, I would read a speech like this because I didn't want anyone to look at me. And I didn't even know why people were asking me my opinion. I mean, it took me a really, it, it was definitely a journey. And I also don't think people should be ashamed of the fact that we all have our own journey. Who's to judge? Mm -hmm. You have to go at a pace that you feel comfortable with. I will mention that, you know, just even yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, fascinating article. It really talks about all the different delivery services. And when people are at home ordering food, every delivery service really charges you a different amount of money. There isn't anyone in, in the world that doesn't want to save money. I never met anyone that doesn't want to have more money, typically, right? Yeah. So if you look at that and you're sitting at home and you've been ordering food, I have to believe if you read the Wall Street Journal, you're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to use this deliverer anymore. I'm going to mm -hmm. go to this deliverer because I can save $4. And if mm -hmm. I'm saving $4 here and I'm not getting, you know, 18 Starbucks lattes every week and therefore I'm saving some money, it all adds up. And it's a sign, again, of self-respect. I think, I think self-education with whatever it is is a sign of self-respect. And once you have that, then you can go touch other people. Alice, listen, I, I wrote that down. That's a terrific quote. Um, you know, self-education is a sign of self-respect. And that kind of leads me to um, the other thing that you're, you're noted for, that you're a terrific sounding board and a great mentor. 
And as I was researching your background, I thought I knew everything about you, but I learned more. Um, one quote that stuck out was, Alice listens well, but she also listens deeply to your dreams, which means you take the time and energy and effort, make the effort to learn about people, learn about um, what their needs are. Now, you're a CEO and of a large firm. You could be doing a hundred other things, yet you carve time out of your busy day to mentor others. Why is that so important to you? I feel it physiologically. I feel it psychologically. I am a very firm believer that we all have. And again, I want to go back. It's not the title. It's the contribution. And I think when you can surround yourself with someone who aspires higher or is happy where they are, but they also have their own path. Um, it is an, um, you get more sharing and helping someone than taking. And the way, and I wanna speak for all my colleagues because I have to tell you, this is a very important thematic and thread here at Elliott. Yes, we have a job to do, we're proud of it. Um, you know, very proud of our capitalist society. I mean, all of that is fine, but we're almost the mirror. And the more you get to know someone, the more they get to know themselves and you get as much from it as you hope you give. And I've had the great privilege of people seeing opportunities, opportunities in me that perhaps I just didn't even know existed and helped me and sought me out. And I can take this at a very deep level with you, Dennis. I mean, I didn't even know what retained search was. I was clueless to it. I, I never even heard the word. And what happened, two things happened concurrently. And this is a long, long time ago. On one hand, I had colleagues here who would come from major organizations. All my colleagues come from corporate. And they were like, we ought to be retained because that's exactly the work that we're doing. And the second thing was that our clients well, we want you to go get our next CEO. Boards are calling us. CEOs are calling and say, we want to retain you. And I realized that we had a unique opportunity to memorialize the Elliott experience. And as much as we loved at that time impacting the junior level early on in our firm's history, if you can impact the senior level, then you can really create change. And we at Elliott believe that we are agents of change in a very positive way. And a lot of that circles back to coaching and mentoring. And by the way, senior level executives, whether you are a CEO, you're a president, you're a CFO, chief people officer, everyone needs to talk to someone. Everyone needs to talk to someone. And in the industry that Elliott's in, and we do travel, leisure, hospitality, restaurants, consumer, the likelihood is you're traveling. So by the time you get home, the last thing you wanna do is bring home work. It's always nice to have someone that is a confidant, especially when you're a CEO, you don't necessarily wanna to speak to someone in your own organization because right. you either can spook people or you know this Dennis better than I do, people take it to be the truth or they right. think it's a future plan. So right. when you have that trusted advisor, it just gives you the freedom to create, get it off your chest, and then make the plan that's right for you. Listen, I liken that um, to uh, you know my experience working for uh, several CEOs. Uh, they get the key to the executive washroom, uh, so to speak, in the big corner office, but it can also be the loneliest uh, role in the world. 
is pretty isolating. Uh, people don't naturally want to bring you only um, good news. They don't want to bring you the bad news or the reality of the business. So it's pretty isolating. Some people describe it as uh, being in a bubble. And so having a confident, having an advisor that can kind of break through that, you can kind of let your hair down is really tantamount to CEO success. So I sit on boards as well, and we do a lot of board work um, here at Elliott. I've had a number of CEOs over the years say, you know, I really would love to have you on the board because I think, you know, you've got the board-based experience and, you know, you get me, you understand me, and it would give me confidence in the boardroom. But I think overarchingly, Alice, you can help. And I've, I have nine out of 10 times the climb because I've always said, once I join that board, I have to represent the firm. Right, right now, I'm your board. And I realize that there's a financial, you know, for me, obviously it would be great to be on a board in some of those instances going public and the like. And I've got one that I you know, can't speak to that I will be doing. But at the end of the day, when you have that personal connection to someone, you just have to decide what's more important. And to me personally, I will always opt to do what's right for the individual as well, beyond what might be good for myself. Yeah, that's the spirit, Alice. Um, terrific stuff. Um, listen, I want to, before we run out of time, turn our attention to 2020, which has been, by all accounts, a pretty horrible year, and we're about ready to turn the page on this year, thankfully. Uh, you sit right in the middle of the restaurant and hospitality sectors, and you've got a bird's eye view of what's been going on, uh, and it hasn't been pretty, obviously. Uh, what do you think the pandemic's lasting impact will have on organizations? and business in general, uh, and specifically on employees going forward? Well, first of all, um, as a, a quick backdrop to this, so our firm has had uh, a confidential CEO call going since March. So that for me, again, goes back to education. I've learned as much as I hope that we've been able to assemble. And you know, through that, we've had guest speakers and it's been fascinating. I think there's a couple of things. I think some of the learnings is number one, I don't think anyone in this great industry will ever, number one, take anything for granted again. Mm. I think when, you know, previously, I th people always have to eat. It's just a question of where they would choose to go. Um, the, there's a large portion of the industry, particularly the independents that have been truly decimated. A lot of it depends where you're based, which city you're in. I happen to live in New York. We have offices all over the country. We have an international alliance. But I think that there has been, um, it has been a huge, wake up call and until very recently with yesterday's news with the second stimulus package, I think it's also been an extraordinary on behalf of the hospitality and restaurant industry disappointment um, as to what they hoped would have happened and the support they would have gleaned. I think the whole notion of delivery and takeout and technology is gonna to continue to stay 110% embedded in a much stronger fashion than anyone ever could have imagined. So takeout and delivery was always something now and with ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens, that is the complexion of where this industry is absolutely categorically headed. I think it'll take longer and we see this with what we'll call the traditional full service um, restaurants of dine-in, but there too, we personally at Elliott, based upon the influx of work for 2021 already that we've garnered, we think that that will abate depending upon the vaccine. So that's the good news that people will take the vaccine eventually. But I think it has, across all lines, Dennis, I think it has 
shook people to its core. And I think it has um, spawned a lot of great new innovative thinking. And we always see that historically, right? People went through World War II, the difference, and look, Warren Buffett said this on CNBC just last week. And if you can't read the Wall Street Journal, then watch the business news. Um, I would advise your audience. But Warren Buffett said in World War II, the government paid companies to shut down. It was for the benefit of the country. When this happened and no one created this, nothing happened. So a lot of small businesses, way beyond restaurants, and I want to make that point for all um, businesses. But I think that the restaurant industry is extraordinarily um, nimble. It, you have to be creative to be in this industry. You have to be work 28 hours a day because when the world plays, you want to work anyway. And I think they have found a path. Um, they have found a path once they work out, and this has not been an easy feat with landlords all over the country. They have yeah. found a path to understanding their guests. I think the intimacy of your guest has become more important giving people a safe harbor, even though restaurants have always been safe, always been safe. I mean, with all due respect, you know, yes, there's been things like Legionnaire's disease, but you haven't found people going to eat indoors, getting sick historically, hasn't happened. There's no data around it, but it has also prompted the restaurant industry to say, we're gonna go 10 more times this way for the benefit of our employees to make sure they feel safe and also for our guests. So I think it's gonna, 2021 is gonna be a very interesting year. There's high enthusiasm. You'll see more drive-throughs, but you will see the ones that are deserving of surviving in the full service dine-in experience. They're gonna come back strong because I would put my money on the fact that people want to celebrate community. They may do it a little bit differently, but they will come back because that is the essence of our great world. Let me just ask you about the impact the pandemics had on talent and talent mobility. Um, again, I've seen the I I see the gamut, uh, both ends of the spectrum. Uh, some people are say, "Hey, listen, I'm taking a mulligan for 2021, and so the world comes back to normal." Uh, that's one point of view from a candidate perspective. On the other hand, um, talent is very mobile. It's like, "Listen, this too shall pass," and sign me up if it's a great job and it's. Uh, great city to live in, and you've got an opportunity that uh, could be fun, I'm, a, I'm in. Um, so it kind of runs, uh, like I said, the gamut. What's your point of view on talent mobility uh, going forward as a result of this pandemic? A lot of it depends upon the financial capital allocation of where they are. It depends on the equity or the ownership relationship. It depends on the public status. I would tell you from, a, from an executive stance, there is more willingness to listen. There is, a, there is a feeling, and we've also, our firm, because we do work in the consumer space, we've also been approached by major financial organizations wanting people from hospitality, healthcare organizations wanting people from hospitality, because they feel that people in hospitality almost are like doctors and nurses the way they have to cater to the public 24 seven. So I think that you're going to see a lot of continued shifting People will always still want to be in this industry, but I would tell you that movement is as much about the family's willingness. Here's the difference. When things, when tragedy struck like 911, people may not have liked their neighbor, but they knew who they were living next to. Mm -hmm. Now we have a virus, people don't know where it's come from. So it's kind of, it's permeated a lot of different cities. So people are actually more willing to relocate because they don't feel it's, it's just kind of a different incident, if you will. 
It depends on the opportunity, but people are willing to get much more creative. On the other side, companies, technology is key. A global perch international is much more important today as a skill set. Um, people cannot, companies are looking to hire people that anticipate and they've got the ability to kind of um, think through maybe three, four, five years. And they're also looking for leaders who they perceive have the emotional maturity to deal with crisis situations that are unpredictable as we've just continued to go through. And with that, the physical energy. I have to tell you for all the right reasons, and this is true of a lot of industries, people are tired, leaders are tired because any great leader is worrying about their team first and they're tired, they're working hard 24 seven and for every movement that you get that's positive, um, there's always something that unfortunately could set you back. So it's a very interesting time. And we're now at Elliott, um, you know, I, I would tell you that we, we are busy. What I've seen um, among executives are real differences in leadership. Uh, the really good ones are able to work through complex issues. They have the stamina to see things through. Uh, they make the tough choices. And yet at the same time, they're available to the organizations. And, and that combination of being able to make tough choices and getting on with the business and at the same time being attentive to and responsive to the employee base is, um, is the stuff of great leadership. And frankly, it's pretty inspiring to me. I totally agree. And I would also say I've seen, particularly through these CEO calls, by the way, most of whom didn't know each other hmm. and the friendships that are formed and the topics that are discussed and people, whether they participate in these calls or not, calling up another CEO in different industries. What do you see? What do you think? What have you done? Who would you recommend? Who's best of class that we could potentially bring in? And the willingness, regardless of potentially competitive landscape of people helping each other really speaks volumes during a very challenging time. And I, I would also, Dennis, you know, really agree with you that, you know, the ability to be nimble and resilient and have that courageous approach and make the tough decision at a very tender time I, I think that's defining for someone recognizing we still don't know what 23 looks like. We don't know what 24 looks like. Everyone's talking 21, 22, that's great. Got to get through that. But I can tell you a lot of the leaders I know, they're already projecting and thinking through what steps do we need to take today for this great organization to position us competitively and safely and positively for the next three to five years. And that's not easy. Alice, that's a great optimistic um, point you're making that I'd like to end on. And I'd like to just thank you for your time. Um, you've been terrific. I'm sure that the listeners are going to get a lot out of this. And I just really, really want to thank you today, Alice. And listen, dinner's on me next. Uh, I know you have a sweet tooth for ice cream, so we'll make that uh, part of the dinner. But listen, uh, be safe. And thank you so much. Thanks for tuning into this webcast. It was uh, Terrific moderating this inaugural then debunked inflection points of senior leaders with Alice Elliott. She's just terrific. I think you can get a sense even over the video what um, that she's a spark plug, uh, has infectious energy, and I hope that came through uh, to you, the listening audience. Now, we intend to do these webcasts every two to three weeks. Future guests are going to include Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, who really puts sustainability on the map. 
It'll be uh, really important to listen to what Paul has to say. Uh, my other guest will be Patrice Louvet, the CEO of Ralph Lauren. And I'm going to have um, Patrice talk to us about what are the changes uh, that are going on in the marketplace about how consumers interact with this brand. You'll hear a lot, a lot about digital marketing, e-commerce in particular. Then for a change of pace, I've got Dr. Ron Dulick, who's a University of Alabama professor, one of my, um, one of my professors from way back when I was a student, he just wrote a book, Sitting with Elephants, which is a really uh, whimsical book, um, what's life in the Sub-Sahara region in uh, the Kenya where he's owned a home for several years. So that'll be an important um, discussion to have with Ron. It will be off the beaten path of our normal discourse. And then I've got Saran Sarajan, who's running Asia Pack for the Procter & Gamble Company. And one of the up and comer executives who in my book likely will be in the running for the CEO role. And I will, I want Saran to talk about what's life like uh, managing a huge geography with lots of change um, in that particular region. So with that in mind, um, listen, thank you again for tuning in. Really appreciate it. This is Dennis Schuler, your moderator. And again, a special thanks to Kinetic Consulting for helping underscore this terrific uh, webcast. Look forward to seeing you down the road. Thank you. Bye-bye.